Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this episode, we're going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine. We'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. And in our top tips segment, we are going to dig into the 101 best websites for tracing your roots with author David Frixell. Then in our library spotlight segment, we'll explore the Indian River County Library in Florida. And in the Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we'll be working on cracking the tombstone code with professional genealogist Sharon DiBartolo Carmack. There's lots to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Well, Allison, there's a very special anniversary coming up soon, isn't there? Tell us about it. Yes, Family Tree Magazine is going to celebrate its 10th anniversary in January. It's really hard to believe that it's been 10 years since we launched the magazine, and I'm proud and amazed to have been part of it all for the entire duration, um, more or less. Um, So, yeah, it was a good opportunity for us to kind of take a step back and think about our 10 years so far, but also to take a look into the future and kind of decide on what direction we would go with the magazine in the future. You bet. It's it's amazing. An entire decade of family tree just flown by. (laughs) It really has flown by. And so you're going to be kind of doing a little uh, makeover or a little spruce up. Give us a sneak peek of what we can look forward to. Sure. You know, it's not going to be a radical change to what we're already doing. We know that our readers really like our magazine the way that it is, and Mm -hmm. we don't want to rock the boat too much. But we felt that it was a good time um, to kind of take our anniversary as an opportunity to update the magazine a little bit in terms of some of the content and as well as the look of the magazine. And so... We're going to be um, adopting a new logo and a new design inside the magazine. So, you know, we want to make things just a little more streamlined in terms of making it easier to digest the information. Um, But we're not going to take away any of, you know, the fun graphics or colorful nature of the magazine either. Just kind of refreshing it a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine improving on it because... Not only do you have such a great balance of, like you said, the the fun graphics and things that that really kind of communicate what the articles are about, but the articles are still just packed with information, really usable information. So you're going to hang on to that, right? Absolutely. That won't change at all, especially sort of the mix of content that readers and listeners might be used to in Family Tree Magazine won't change a bit. Um, We are, though, introducing some new content based on reader feedback and just some good ideas that our editorial staff had, and I can give everyone sort of a sneak peek into that. I think it's something that folks will be really excited about. 
one thing that we're doing is we, we want to uh, align some of our print content a little bit more with things that we're doing on our website so that there's that connection for people that you can recognize um, between what we're doing and all these different media. So our upfront section with the news is going to change from branching out to become the genealogy insider, like our blog oh, online. Yeah. yeah, and Diane's going to continue to do that. Um, we're just going to you know kind of pack that full of news and fun facts and, and interesting stuff going on in the genealogy world. And then also our preserving memories column is going to take a slightly different tack um, as now called the family archivist. And one neat thing that we'll be adding in that section in addition to archival preservation advice is a different project that you can do to preserve or share family history in each issue. And um, Sunny Morton, who is one of our regular contributors and regularly appears on this show, um, she will be doing that column, and she's really excited about it and has some really great ideas to bring forth um, that you can look forward to. Well, that's great, because that's such a key part. I mean, we do our genealogy research, but, you know, you you need ways to be able to creatively display and, and share with people what you're finding so you can interest the rest of the family in it, right? Definitely. Yeah, um, there are two other columns or departments that will be changing. One new one is the document detective. And you're probably already familiar with the photo detective that Maureen Taylor does where she analyzes a photo submitted by readers. Right. This is kind of the same approach. We'll, we'll take one document that would be used in genealogy and analyze it in terms of what kind of information you can look for or expect to find, how that information can lead you to other family history clues, and some background information about that type of record that would help you in terms of being able to locate those records and use them. Oh, that sounds great. Sounds like something all of us can use. Yeah, kind of just a quick reference guide, you could, you could call it. And then finally, um, we are going to use our back page as a time capsule column. And this is one I'm really excited about because I really enjoy the social history aspect of genealogy Mm -hmm. where you learn about not just who the names of your ancestors were and when they were born and when they died, but also understanding really what their lives were like. And so we're going to excerpt ancestors' experiences in their own words from journals and diaries and other you know, letters and things that have been published so that you could get a sense of, say, you know, a pioneer ancestor's experience or an immigrant ancestor's experience or a Revolutionary War soldier's experience. And each issue will highlight one of those excerpts and provide some additional resources for going to learn more. Oh, how fun. I mean, and how interesting, too, because we certainly don't have to read just our own ancestors' experience to get a sense of the context of their lives. And what a great resource. You'll be able to pull from so many different areas. Yeah, the problem that we have is never that we're going to run out of content, but always that, you know, there's just not enough time or space (laughs) that ever seems to cram it all in. And how do you pick one, right? Exactly. Oh, that sounds great. Gosh, so many new things. And I love the fact that you guys are continuing to incorporate the online world with the the world on paper, which we enjoy so much on the magazine. And it sounds like it's just going to become more and more of an integrated experience. That's our goal. Thank you so much for our sneak peek. We've got lots of things to look forward to. When will we start seeing some of these new projects and new columns? Yeah, they're going to appear in the January 2010 Um, 10th anniversary issue that will be available on newsstands on December 1st. Oh, looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Allison. Thank you, Lisa. 
it's time for the news from the blogosphere with the Genealogy Insider and Managing Editor, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. So what is going on new in the world of genealogy these days? Well, we have a few things, um, bigger things that have happened lately. And I think the first one that I have our, our listeners are going to be very happy to hear about, and some may already have heard about it, the 1930 census that Footnote has made free in August. And that's searching the indexes, seeing and downloading the record images, seeing other people's comments on the images, everything in August, 1930 census free. Oh, that's great. So if you haven't had a chance to dig into it, this is this is the time. And you get not only the index, but the images too. So right. full use, right? Yes. And I think it's even if you have found your ancestors in other 1930 censuses, it's a good opportunity to go in, see if there are any other footnote members' comments, and just try out the site and see what people think. You bet. And it's funny, it, it can be a little bit different site by site as far as how you can locate things and how things are transcribed, aren't they? I mean, sometimes the indexes can even vary. Yeah, and one thing Footnote does is they have a keyword search. So, well, it's, it's a filtering search. So you type in a term and then it filters all the results by that term. And then you type in the next term and it filters you know, those results. And so you can delete those terms. There's a panel on the side where you can click a field to see what options for that field are available in the results that you're looking at. So you can see, um, you know, what first names are in those results that you're looking at. And then you can go through and pick a first name and say, oh, that's my ancestor's first name. Let's look at all the John Smiths or, or whoever. Oh, terrific. And that's available through the end of August 2009, right? Correct. Great. Anything else going on? Um, well, something else is that Ancestry.com has issued an IPO. Um, they are planning to go public, so they're hoping to raise $75 million with that initial offering. Their ticker symbol will be ACOMACOM. Do you think that would mean anything different for users down the road? If they raise that kind of capital, you imagine that that might mean some expansion for them? Yes. Um, it could mean more and better services. You know, and that's, of course, what we're all hoping for. Great. Were there any other new records or anything coming online this month? They have just expanded their Jewish records collection with two new partners, the American Jewish Historical Society. And it looks like they have some naturalization records, some orphan records. Um, and then also Miriam Weiner's Route to Roots Foundation, Route to Roots Foundation. She has a database of Eastern European Jewish names from a variety of records, and that is now also searchable through Ancestry.com. Um, it's also searchable on Miriam Weiner's Routes to Roots website. Um, Ancestry.com has some different search options, so people might want to try that one too. I know that when they announced that, there were a lot of folks out there really looking forward to those collections. So Absolutely. Um, it's exciting. Things certainly don't slow down in the summertime, do they? Things just keep rolling along and no, keep changing. That's right. <laughs> Great. Well, of course, tell us your address again for the Genealogy Insider so people can keep up to date every day on what's going on. Of course. It's blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Terrific. Well, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date, Diane. You're welcome.
It's that time of year when Family Tree Magazine announces its top picks for the best websites for tracing your roots. And here to give us the scoop is contributing editor David Frixell. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks for having me. First of all, I have just got to say, with all the websites coming online every day and the existing ones are constantly changing and upgrading, how in the world do you keep up with all of these? (laughs) I can't believe it. Of course, I have a lot of help from the folks at Family Tree Magazine. They're uh, always on top of these things, and you know, with the their blog and everything, they're always spotting them. And so I kind of try to keep track through the whole year of uh, changes. But what it really comes down to then is just going back and visiting a lot of sites. You know, I keep lists of new ones, and then go back and take a look at all the uh, winners from oh, you know, the past couple of years, and see which ones still deserve to be on the list, and which ones that maybe fallen off uh, you know, the, the pack a little bit. You bet. Well, and, and that's one of the things I noticed in this year's list, in the 2009 list, and it's in the September 2009 issue of the magazine, for those of you who'd like to take a look at it. These different categories that you've chosen really reflect, I think, how genealogy research has changed because of the internet. It used to be more just all of those sites that you could find records on, and now, really, you've carved out a lot of different categories that reflect all the different ways that websites can assist you with being a researcher. It really is amazing how it's changed. uh, This is the 10th anniversary uh, of the 101 best websites, and in that very first one, you know, a decade ago, a lot of the websites were, you know, lists of links and sort of little helpful tips. It really didn't take much to get on our very first 101 best, (laughs) you know, that long ago. Um, And then it began to change as you saw more and more uh, real records come online, and that's you know really been the trend over the past few years. Where you know now you can go online and oh, there's that birth certificate or that death certificate or those land records. Or it's amazing what you can find. And a lot of the the categories we picked ten categories, and each had uh, ten plus we had uh, one wild card at the end. A lot of those reflect that still that records emphasis. But this year, uh, really, too, I think we saw another trend, which was. The uh, just like in the rest of the internet, you know, the things like social networking and ways to use the internet to connect with other genealogists in you know very high tech ways. So we have one of the categories is ten stellar sites for storing and sharing, and those include you know websites where you can build a collaborative family tree online. You know, you and your uh, far flung relatives can all work together on it. Uh, even some sites that might be considered mainstream uh, sites uh, like Flickr or Facebook where uh, there are specialized things you can do with them for genealogy. There are even applications that you can use within Facebook uh, now to uh, you know, make it more effective for genealogists. Or Flickr can be used to you know, share your old family photos as well as you know, your new snapshots. So that's really been a, a change, just the whole development of technology that lets you do those sort of things that, you know, when we did that first 101 best websites, we never could have dreamed of. We were, we were just thrilled that, hey, look, here's some links, you know, here's, <laughs> here's five useful tips. <laughs> Bar a little bit higher after 10 years now. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. We've all come to expect, um, you know, not to just find records, but to have all of these different tools and applications and things that help us do what we do better and faster and more accurately and more interestingly. And and really, 
because the internet can't hold, obviously, well, I suppose it could eventually, but it doesn't hold now all of the records that are available. Um, I like the fact that you had the list. Let's see here. It says 10 best sites for searching locally. And it's websites are as much about what records they contain on their databases as they are about how to go about finding the hard copies, right? Right. And it was really tough, you know, figuring out, since we'd come up with this great idea for, you know, doing 10 groups of 10, um, it was really tricky then, uh, you know, coming up with exactly what's the best fit for each of those categories. Yeah. My favorite, just because I like the, uh, you know, the name is that we have the 10 best sites for to see dead people. <laughs> and it, because it was fun to find ones that related to cemeteries and, you know, they're now ones where not only can you, uh, you know, search for the, uh, you know, the ancestral tombstone, but they'll map it and uh, it interface with things with actually another of the 101 best websites is Google Earth, which it's just, it's just amazing the kind of mapping technology that you can get now to uh, help you figure out, you know, where your ancestors were. Maps will go back in the past now. There's a new historic map works that uh, is available through libraries that will help you do that. And so, again, it's things that, you know, 10 years ago we never would have dreamed of. And I think it's so innovative, the fact that you have broadened the scope beyond traditional genealogy websites. It doesn't have to be genealogy website to be of huge value to the genealogist. And I think Google Earth is a perfect example of that. I mean, there's nothing better. And it's just amazing um, how it can help you get a visual on where all your ancestors were. And you also had, um, now I have to mention, the 10 top sites for cutting-edge tools and tips. I, not just because I was listed on it with Genealogy Gems, but I was so excited to see the magazine including not just records, not just search engines and, and tools, but also the educational component. Tell us about that. Well, it's another example of sort of the, the next wave, sort of, if you will, and it's a, it's a pretty broad category. You know, we have blogs in there. We've got, you know, places like yours where we can, you can get podcasts. Um, you've got uh, sort of advanced search, like this live roots, which is what they call a sort of a meta search. It searches multiple sites all at once. It, things like Ancestry Insider, where it sort of, you know, keeps an eye on what's new on that gigantic website of, you know, Ancestry plus DNA sites uh, that, you know, of course, there's another gigantic change sweeping mm -hmm. uh, genealogy. You know, tools, things like Roots Television, where you can go online and you know, watch videos that will help you become a better genealogist. It's a, a wide variety, but it's sort of a good sampling of the kind of things that now you can do on, on the Internet besides just, you know, look at, look at records, wonderful that is. Exactly. And of course, in a class by itself, <laughs> that's the category, plus one is Ancestry.com. Ancestry really does still kind of stand out there as that one mega site, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, we were trying to figure out, well, how do we get to 101 if we're going to have 10 groups of 10? And it really made sense to put Ancestry by itself because it's, it's really not like anything else. And um, I know a lot of people think, oh, gee, it's so expensive. But, you know, for, for the kinds of things you can do, it really still comes the closest to being able to, you know, do all your genealogy online. If, if uh, like me, if you really are not that fond of scrolling microfilm, uh, you know, Ancestry really is the next best thing to, you know, having all those records right at your fingertips and it shows what Internet genealogy, you know, really is possible. Of course, even they now are changing and they're doing a lot more collaborative things. 
Um, so, you know, by, by next year, it'll be interesting to see what category they even fit in. Well, exactly, because they have almost something in every category already as, as far as the tools and the, and the creative components they've got. It, it's really interesting. And David, when it comes to ancestry, this brings me to this little section that you had in the article, which is called Blasts from the Cyber Past. Things have changed a lot at Ancestry. First and foremost, you noticed the price. <laughs> Were you surprised by all the changes that you found these last 10 years? Yes. Well, I, I love this blast in the cyber past, which includes sites that you know were in the very first one, um, and it, I, I love the one um, firstct.com, where the description of it was a list of five steps for starting genealogical research <laughs> that probably wouldn't make the 101 best today, yeah. um, and that that is you know among the dead sites that uh, you know now litter the uh, um, the internet. But there's still some sites on there that. Like not just Ancestry, but Ephrogenius, uh, Ellis Island, which was sort of brand new then, Family Search, which was pretty much brand new then, um, Roots Web, the Library of Congress, American Memory Project, which had some uh, 60 collections at that point. I don't know how many it is now. It's a lot more. And uh, U.S. Gen Web, um, which has uh, been a volunteer project you know, ever since. But, of course, Roots Web at that point was not owned by Ancestry.com, so that's changed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, there are all kinds of changes, and yet a few things, you know, remain constant. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you you noted here in the blast from the cyber past that Ancestry at that time had 1,800 databases, and and now they talk billions of names (laughs) and records. And, And of course, Library of Congress only had 60 databases. So many changes. What do you see in the future in terms of what we can expect in the changes uh, of the Internet and how the Internet will affect our research? Well, I suspect that we're going to see another wave of uh, records coming online that uh, maybe we're, they're pausing for breath a little bit, but, you know, certainly Ancestry is continuing to, uh, to do that. And uh, a lot of the local efforts have been hurt by things like budget cuts right now. But once, once we get through that, you know, this period in the economy, I think we will see another big round of, uh, of that. And then I think the, the whole collaborative family tree notion uh, will probably expand in ways that we can't even you know, imagine yet. Uh, the ancestry has this thing called One World Tree, where it sort of magically combines your family trees. And I imagine that we could see something like that that has nothing to do with ancestry, but where uh, you know, out in the, the computing cloud, as they call it, uh, we're all somehow combining uh, you know, our research efforts to... Uh, you know, push back farther in the past and hopefully make things, you know, more accurate. Uh, so I think we've probably only seen the beginning of the collaborative social networking kind of aspect for genealogy. But it's it'll be fun to watch. We'll you know we'll see what the next ten years bring. You bet. Well, and you mentioned the the cloud concept, and um, I could see the possibility of these databases that we've been building no longer residing on our hard drive at all, but perhaps being out there on a, on a website cloud. More and more, it, it's being liberated from, you know, the individual desktop computer, and that enables not only backup sort of things, but also the ability to, you know, share and exchange and um, annotate each other's, you know, finds and that sort of thing, so that when you find, you know, that somebody has your, you know, great-great-uncle Joe uh, in the wrong census, you know, you can attach a note to it or maybe fix it or uh, that kind of thing. You know, we're already seeing that, and I suspect we'll see a lot, you know, a lot more of that. And it is true that, you know, your, your distant cousins whom you maybe have never met, 
or don't even know they exist, often do have those answers to your genealogy puzzles. If only you could connect with them, and the Internet surely makes it you know, easy, whether they're down the block or you know, all the, on the other side of the world. Well, and two, it's possible that one of our listeners out there may end up being the uh, co-founder of the next big website. It was interesting. I was interviewing Joe Bott, who was the founder of DeadFred.com, which, of course, made your list of best places to see dead people. He appears in the July 2009 podcast episode. And fascinating. He was saying, I had no idea that this was going to take off the way it did. So it's amazing. It can just be anybody who just has a challenge before them and finds an answer for it, right? That's been, you know, so much true. So many of the things just in the Internet at large, you know, Facebook and MySpace and uh, YouTube, all those sort of things, you know, really often just, you know, one person or two people's ideas, and boom, they take off. And I think one of the pluses for genealogy online is that the financial model seems to be better, that a lot of things are inexpensive, so you don't really need a lot of money, and then on those things where there, you provide real value, like ancestry, people are willing to pay. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's the challenge for a lot of the newer uh, websites that aren't genealogy is, oh, that's great, everyone's coming to YouTube, but how do we make any money off of this? Uh-huh. <laughs> and in genealogy, there's real value. So, you know, at, at one point I remember, you know, there was a list of only a handful of websites where people were actually paying for data, and I think they included some sports websites, the Wall Street Journal, and genealogy websites like Ancestry. Um, so, you know, if you really deliver something that's valuable, people are willing to pay for it. And that, of course, then makes it possible to keep putting more and more um, records and things online. It's exciting to see the new websites that you have listed here. And, of course, the future, who, who knows what it will hold. But we will keep our eyes peeled. If you want to take a look at the 2009 list, you can check it out at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash 101 for 2009. David, thank you so much. It's a terrific list. Uh, we have to go check out some of these sites I haven't heard of before. And um, I hope we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Time to go start on next year's. That's right. <laughs> Bye. The Indian River County Library in Vero Beach, Florida, was identified by a large group of librarians that we surveyed as a library not to be missed by genealogists. And in today's Library Spotlight segment, I have with me librarian Pamela J. Cooper to tell us more about it. Welcome to the show, Pam. Oh, thank you so much for asking me to to talk about our wonderful resource that we have here. Well, and that's exactly what we want to do because I've been looking at the website. Um, it's, it looks like you've got some great stuff there. But before we get into specifics about the genealogy department, um, maybe you can just kind of give us an overview of the Indian River County Library. Sure. Um, the library actually was founded in 1915. Uh, the actually original building is right across the street. We still have it here. And uh, then the building we're in now was built in 1991. And uh, we are very happy and very pleased to have be in this building. We're on the second floor, and we're in the room that we are enclosed by glass. Everybody says it's the glass palace. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we have um, a very large collection. We started out with like 250 books, and now we have well over 35,000 volumes and, and oh, probably about 25,000 microfilm and over 40, maybe 40,000 microfish. 
So the collection has grown over the 20-some years that we have moved into this uh, library. And um, we actually have two departments, and I just wanted to clarify that because we call ourselves the Archive Center and Genealogy Department. And the Archive Center was because was created right after the hurricanes of 2004 when we were devastated by two of them. And people started realizing they needed to preserve their personal and local history collections, and we were designated. So we now have a separate department for just local history, which has really grown. But that's pretty much what the, the, the our whole department is about. And and you work there in the genealogy department. Tell us, you are a an official family history center, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's um, We were probably one of the first of 19 in the world in 1996 to be designated a family history center. And uh, so we've been one for quite a while, and uh, it gets used quite often. And now uh, the uh, LDS Church has allowed us to keep the film on indefinite loan, so now we're getting quite a collection of indefinite loan microfilms. So we're very happy about that. That's great. And so if, if you don't have what somebody's looking for, they can go online, pull from the catalog, and actually order microfilms as well, can't they? Yeah. Absolutely. For $5.50, it's just wonderful. And as soon as they become indefinite loan, um, we actually catalog them immediately. We got permission from the church to do that, uh, to make sure that we could put them in our catalog. So if you go to our catalog online and find something from some odd place in Germany, it's probably something like on microfilm that we have that someone ordered. Right. Now, if somebody were lucky enough to actually get to come and visit you in person, I noticed at the website, you really have a terrific little area where you describe, you know, what to bring and directions and everything you would need to know to plan for a a trip. Um, What are some of the, the key things that you think people should keep in mind before they come and make a visit so they can really get the most out of visiting your library? Oh, absolutely. The first thing to do is to go to the website, and on the left-hand side are three, well, actually, on the left hand there's two things that are very important, the pathfinders and the guides, and then, of course, the most important thing is our catalog. We try to catalog everything as soon as we can. We're probably anywhere from three to six months behind in books, and that's pretty good in, uh, in comparison to most libraries. But our Pathfinders is um, basically guides to major collections. For example, if you want to know a general overview of what we have on Pennsylvania, we have a, a guide to just a, a brief uh, information about the uh, what we have in our collection. Uh, do you want to know what we have on Revolutionary War research? And there's, again, a guide to that. So there's about 50 pathfinders, and we work on them all the time. It's um, it's a constant updating, of course. And then the guides themselves are to the microfilm and the microfish collection, which is often, I mean, all the time overlooked. It's really a shame because I always tell people that when you look at our film and fish collection, there's just as much in there as there is on the shelves, and they just kind of look at me and wonder, how is that possible, because it's (laughs) a smaller area, but that's the truth, and uh, so it, it really does almost double our collection by looking at our film and fish. 
Well, and that was one of my final questions, which is, what do you really feel like are some of the the key strengths? What what really sets your department apart and is unique so that we don't want to miss it if we get a chance to go there? Well, because we're in Florida, we have so many people who say, well, I don't want to use your genealogy department because you probably just have Florida collection. Well, right. the opposite is true. <laughs> um, we we have everybody from the north. We have very few Florida researchers, and when we do, we get all excited about it. Yeah. And uh, But most of the people, about 90%, are from the north, and so our, our biggest strength is New England and the mid-Atlantic states, uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York. We are very strong in and quite a few materials and in fact Canada is one of our uh, strengths because we have so many Canadian people who winter here and love to use our, our genealogy collection. So anybody who winters in Florida, they usually find out about us, and then they come here to research. Mm-hmm. The other thing is our manuscripts, and that is what I, I've always been a lover of manuscript collections. I think that's how I started over 35 years ago, is just sitting down and looking at these wonderful manuscripts that have never been published, but many of them have been microfilmed, and we have some very unusual collections that... Um, uh, I don't know if they're ever going to get on the internet in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very, very unusual because they're so hand, they're all mostly handwritten collections. Um, we have the Shane Collection of Kentucky and Ohio. Uh, we have the Francis Cron Manuscript Collection of New Jersey. Um, and I found out, well, just by looking in the catalog, we're probably the only second library in the whole United States that has that collection. Well, maybe I should say third because the LDS has it. But the other one has been one in New Jersey and, and us. And I bought this several years ago when somebody said that this was a fabulous collection, and it sure is. It really is incredible for Sussex, Warren, and Morris County, New Jersey, and Northeast Pennsylvania, and Orange County, New York. So it's, it's an incredible collection of manuscript materials on microfilm. And, of course, we have many of the standard manuscript collections that many people are familiar with, the Massachusetts uh, Corbin Collection or the Connecticut Barber and Hale Collection, where some of those have been republished and are getting online. But um, my focus for many years has always been trying to purchase manuscript materials that have been put on microfilm. Um, they're just absolutely incredible. Um, the Joseph Brown Turner collection, we have that on Microfish, and I see that they're trying to put it online, but it's, it's so, I mean, they have very little uh, online at the Delaware archives, but that's a Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, and it's a fabulous collection. I, it's, it's just something that people, if they overlook it, they're really missing something um, from the Delmarva area. Those are my favorite things to do is manuscripts, and that's what I think is our biggest strength here at the library besides having New England and Mid-Atlantic area. Well, Pam, you make a great point, and that is is that we can't judge a library by its cover that, you know, we might think that it's – or by its state (laughs) because – it may be in Florida, but what a terrific and, and wide variety of materials that you have there. Well, 
if you want to um, check out the Indian River County Main Library um, in Vero Beach, Florida, first head to their website, which is irclibrary.org slash genealogy. That'll get you straight to the genealogy department where you'll find Pam. And they are located at 1600 21st Street in Vero Beach, Florida. The zip is 32960. And it just sounds like a wonderful and very comprehensive library. Pam, thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing it with our listeners. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope we'll see a lot more people here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bartolo Carmack is a professional genealogist and regular contributor to Family Tree Magazine. In today's Best of Family Tree Magazine segment, we are going to revisit one of Sharon's articles from the June 2005 issue called Cracking the Tombstone Code. And here is Sharon herself to talk to us about it. Welcome back to the show, Sharon. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be here. Well, I'm so curious. Um, I was looking back through this article from 2005. What exactly did you mean by cracking the tombstone code? Are there some clues out there we're supposed to be looking for? Well, there are. In fact, so many people, um, not so many, but there are many people who go to the cemetery to look for their ancestors' graves, of course. And then when they find them, they're very anxious to copy down the vital record information, you know, the births and deaths, and if there's a marriage date, that kind of information. But sometimes um, genealogists tend to overlook that there may be other clues on the headstone, such as the symbol that's carved into the stone or the epitaph, which is usually the little rhyme or poem or or some little saying um, also on the tombstone. And the purpose of the article was to bring out those two elements, and in particular, the symbols that are carved on tombstones and what they might mean, what they might have meant for your ancestors. I imagine if somebody goes to the great lengths of selecting one particular symbol or a saying or um, some kind of a, a quote, they probably put a lot of thought into that. So it must have a great deal of meaning about our ancestors. I'm kind of curious, when did symbols and writings start to occur on tombstones? Well, that, uh, of course, happened decades and decades and centuries and centuries ago. You know, symbols are very common. If we go back to um, caveman days, we saw symbols on cave walls and that kind of thing. Um, In America, symbols on headstones pretty much started with um, our colonial ancestors in New England. Um, Initially, they just marked graves with whatever they could find, a, a big rock or or um, a wooden cross or, or something like that. But as stone carvers came to this country and they um, found stone quarries or imported the stone from England early on, that's when they started making tombstones like we're used to seeing and putting symbols on them. And symbols on headstones have evolved over the centuries and, and reflect our attitudes toward death. If we look at the symbols of our colonial ancestors, they had a very um, stark outlook toward death. And so you'll see things like skulls and crossbones or winged death heads, which is a skull with wings on it. And then eventually, um, as we get into the 1800s, our attitude toward death was more 
one of mourning and loss. So we start to see the use of urns and willows, which represents our earthly sorrow. Then as we get on into the 1900s, then we start to consider death as um, eternal sleep. And so we'll see symbols that are more... Um, uh, concerned with the deceased being in an eternal rest. Uh, flowers start to adorn graves, um, maybe even symbols of beds or anything that um, portrays the home, that they are in a new home and asleep. And then once we get into the 20th century, then our attitude towards death changes again, and now we start to celebrate life. And so the symbols on a tombstone may represent somebody's profession or their hobbies or something they held dear in life. Wow. So even if for some unfortunate reason, the the year of a tombstone has been obliterated, you might get some clues about how old that tombstone is just based on the type of symbols that they're using, it sounds like. Absolutely. Not only can you tell approximately, you know, the time period based on the symbols, but sometimes you can tell whether the adult was, uh, I'm sorry, whether the deceased was an adult or child. Lambs are very common on children's tombstones, although you don't see them on adult stones as much, uh, whereas sheaves of wheat are very common on adult to- tombstones, indicating that the harvest has come in and they've led a full life. Um, sometimes you can tell whether the deceased was male or female if you can't really tell from the grave based on um, if they have the symbol of the daughters of the American Revolution, obviously they're going to be a female. If they uh-huh. have the symbol of, of the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, then they're going to be male. Um, so there are lots of clues hidden in the symbol that you may not even think about um, just from looking at it until you start to study it. And I love this article because you have so many really usable tools and details in it. You have a sidebar here. It says sign language, which gives us a list of a lot of the more common symbols and and images that we might find and kind of what some of the meanings were behind them. I'm interested to know, I know that you've looked at a lot of tombstones. What are some of the most unique ones that you've found that really piqued your interest? It's actually not a symbol, but probably the most unique marker I've seen is a log cabin. Um, it's a mausoleum, and the log, the mausoleum was fashioned like a log cabin with an axe and, and all of the symbols that we traditionally think of on, um, you know, the western frontier and everything else. And that in itself is very symbolic. The symbols may not be just something that's carved into the stone, but carved on top of the stone or the stone itself. And there are lots of unique um, markers and, and um, symbols and, and that kind of thing out there. But I just loved this log cabin. It was just so unique and so different from anything that I'd ever seen before. That's amazing. I'm sure that's a, a one in a million. <laughs> well, and also in this article, you've you know, not only given us the information behind some of these symbols, but you've even given us a little test here. We can test our tombstone IQ. And, and this was great, too. Did, did it take you a long time to kind of learn all the subtleties? Are you, are you finding new things every day? Or do you find that it kind of remains the same as you go throughout different cemeteries? 
It really kind of remains the same. Symbols can also be very regional. So, for example, you won't see the skull and crossbones and the winged death head necessarily um, in the south as you do as much in uh, the north and in New England. So it is kind of regional. Um, how I got interested in this is I attended a lecture at the University of Colorado when I was living in Colorado Springs decades ago, and it was given by an art history professor, and he was studying Midwestern symbols as part of his art history um, program. And I thought, gosh, that has so much meaning for genealogists, and I've never seen anybody really talk about the symbols. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started really getting involved in it and studying it, and every family vacation we went to cemeteries. (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere we went, we stopped in a cemetery, and I have thousands of uh, photographs of of symbols and everything. So it's really fascinating. And then after a while, you get to see that that they are um, not only very common, but there tends to be a pattern, a regional pattern, a, a pattern you know based on the decade, and again showing our changing attitude toward death over the dec over the centuries as well. Wow, a lot of information on a very small piece of stone, but so much to learn. And if you want to learn more about this whole idea of deciphering tombstones, um, again, check out the June 2005 issue of the magazine. Uh, The article is called Cracking the Tombstone Code, and you will definitely become an expert. Get some of those old photographs out and uh, see if you can't find some of those symbols there that Sharon has shared with us. Sharon, it's a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for coming to the show and, and sharing it with us. Well, you're quite welcome. And for those listeners who want even more information on um, besides symbols as well as other things in the cemetery, uh, my book, Your Guide to Cemetery Research, it is out of print, but there are still copies floating around, and I still have some copies. You can find them in libraries across the country. And that goes into a lot more detail than I could in the article. Um, So there's lots of resources out there. Oh, that's great. And what's your website address so people can contact you? Yeah, mine is easy. It's just www.sharoncarmack.com. Easy enough. Sharon, thanks again. Always a pleasure. You too. Thanks so much, Lisa. much for joining me for the June 2009 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Then start visiting the 101 best websites for tracing your family roots. You'll find the complete list in the September 2009 issue of the magazine. Next, head over to the Indian River County Library's Genealogy Department at www.irclibrary.org genealogy to discover the wide range of resources that they have that go well beyond the state of Florida. And finally, get out your June 2005 issue of the magazine to revisit Sharon DiBartolo Carmack's article, Cracking the Tombstone Code, where you'll find the meaning behind those tombstone symbols and where you can test your knowledge. Back issues are also available at the Family Tree Magazine shop at shopfamilytree.com. 
I'll have all the links that we've mentioned on today's show for you on the webpage for this episode. And you can find us on the web at familydreammagazine.com slash podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast for free through iTunes so that each episode will be automatically downloaded when it's published. And if you are an iTunes listener and you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment and leave a five-star rating and a written review on our iTunes listing. Your positive reviews will help us get the word out to new listeners by raising our ranking in iTunes, as well as just encouraging new listeners to give the show a try. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website at genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. Mm -hmm.